Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles albums list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bought the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the 1959 Hitchcock film North by Northwest, uh, starring Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason. It is, I don't say this lightly, but if you were to make a list of like the most purely entertaining movies of all time that I feel like would work, on basically anyone, um, North by Northwest is is a movie that fits. It's a movie that I think you could put into that conversation, and I think it would it would do pretty well for itself. Um, it's got this wonderful, charismatic, maybe even a career best performance from Cary Grant. Um, it is it is certainly the one that I think. Once you get past his screwball stuff from the 30s and 40s, it's the one that I think most people kind of seize on because um, just how just how beautifully annoyed he is through most of this movie and then gets more and more serious about everything and it still has like this old man strength that sort of powers him through, but he's also very horny and really likes alcohol, and just, it's a, it's a very, it's a very compelling performance, um, which is, which is funny in some places, and frightening in others, and exciting almost all the time. Um, it's got the great Hitchcock set pieces, so of course one knows Alfred Hitchcock for the exciting things that happen in his movies, and the, the thrilling things that go on, and this one has, honestly... We we sort of mentioned this mentioned this last podcast, but I think the the moment with the crop duster in North by Northwest, where Cary Grant realizes that that thing is after him specifically, and he starts to run away from it, and you can see that thing in the upper left corner of the screen, getting closer all the time. It's it's just like what an incredible image that is. Um, it is it is maybe the the signature image of of Hitchcock's entire career. Um, it's got the, the sexiness, the blonde that you expect from, from Hitchcock, though even Marie Saint is not my favorite. Um, I think she's a little cold-blooded for the, for the movie, and she doesn't have to be that cool to the touch, but it's a very good performance from him, not, or from her nonetheless. 
Um, and I think above all else, this is like the pinnacle of the Hitchcock Ron Man movie, which is sort of the the distillation of what the guy was most interested in. I think um, if you if you look across his career from making silent movies in Britain to making weird weird black comedies like he did a lot in the last few years of his life. Um, you can see this preoccupation with what if the law, what if the media, what if the family, whatever, what if everybody assumed that this guy who was actually innocent, this guy who really has nothing to do with a crime or a wrongdoing, what if everybody thought he did it? It is... A, a very interesting set of thoughts to have, and it is one that you you really can find in in his career for more than thirty years. Um, you can see it in one of his best British movies, which is The Lodger, uh, a story of the London Fog, um, which I think is probably like the pinnacle of British silent movie making. Uh, a film in which a mysterious lodger at a boarding house is assumed to be a murderer and is almost lynched by a crowd until someone manages to save him at the end and, and prove that he's not the person who's been murdering people. Um, you have it in the 39 Steps, which is just the pared-down British version of North by Northwest. It's a, a spy thriller with a guy who's not a spy um, who has to go across the countryside. Uh, if you love Scotland, I guess that's the one for you. Um, you have a movie like Saboteur, which ends with... Um, Robert Cummings on top of the of the uh, Statue of Liberty and unable to save Norman Lear who falls off that thing like that's a moment which is played with pretty distinctively in North by Northwest which of course just transposes that final action sequence to um, South Dakota and puts it on Mount Rushmore instead but it's the exact same idea and then you have a movie like I Confess, where which is like kind of, in my opinion, one of the more underrated Hitchcocks, a Montgomery Clift movie, uh, where he's playing this priest who knows the identity of of a criminal thanks to confession, uh, but there's a lot of evidence that points back to him, and he's like stuck in a position where he can't save himself because he doesn't want to violate uh, the confessional, and there's there's a lot of really gorgeous anxiety in that movie. And I think, for me, my personal favorite Hitchcock movie about the wrong man is The Wrong Man, where <laughs> sometimes sometimes people just get tired of, of bouncing around the idea and just name the movie after the thing. Uh, but it's a it's a based on a true story, um, where Henry Fonda plays this um, this very, very quiet, very mild-mannered musician um, who gets wrapped up in in the law, believing that he's a guy who's been uh, burglarizing and holding up stores in, in the area. And he cannot convince them that he's not the right guy. The cops have sort of made up their mind that it's him. He does a couple things that are just coincidentally exactly the wrong things to do, and it takes him years to clear his name and only manages to do so when they actually catch the guy. Um, and it's it's just this this really wonderful movie which Fonda 
plays so so naturally um, that you kind of get swept up in it as well. It's not a lot of fun. It's too stressful and realistic for it to be fun. But then you get North by Northwest, a movie which is just sort of ludicrous from the start. Um, Cary Grant playing essentially Roger Sterling, um, someone who is enjoying the life on, on Madison Avenue and the, the way that it gives him lots of time to drink and lots of time to make money and lots of time to womanize and lots of time to call his mom and yell at her when she yells at him and all, <laughs> all of those things that, that one literally does see from Roger Sterling <laughs> in your average episode of Mad Men. Um, and it, it goes very quickly from being the story of this unassuming kind of moron Roger Thornhill, um, who is assumed to be George Kaplan because of a mistaken identity thing. And George Kaplan is this made up figure, um, who, who the, I guess it's supposed to be the Soviets, um, the Soviet own spies are supposed to believe is, is running around the country and infiltrating stuff and so on. Um, they believe that, that this Roger Thornhill is the guy and he only manages to escape death by alcohol poisoning slash drunk driving by the, by the slimmest of margins. And then the movie really picks up and then he gets in on the act and there's like, just this movie has everything. <laughs> it feels like a Stefan routine of, of everything that you would possibly want from, uh, from an Alfred Hitchcock picture. And it is just, it's over two hours. Like it's in that dread zone for me of about 135 minutes, which I think is usually the kiss of death for a movie. But absolutely all of it is a lot of fun. Absolutely all of it is, is really exciting. Um, you'll find a lot of people who call this maybe the best Hitchcock movie or at least their favorite Hitchcock movie. And I say this having done one of my Alfred Hitchcock meta-analysis things that's like in the, in the, in the, what's the word? On the back burner. It's not in anywhere. It's on something. It's like on the back burner for me. And I've been like sort of plugging away at that. And it's, it's in the top one or two for a lot more people than I would have expected. Um, and I think part of it is just like the sheer joy of being able to watch this movie. Um, the absolutely perfect central performance from Cary Grant, um, it's it's just a, a real a real joy ride. It is something which I have shown to teenagers before, and they loved it. Um, it's it's the kind of thing that you can watch with your parents. It is it is just absolutely perfect entertainment on so many different levels. This is one that I I am sure you must also like because who doesn't like this movie? Yeah, I mean that's the basic assessment. It's been a long time since I've seen this one actually, um, but it's just. It's just it's purely enjoyable. Um, you know, speaking of a hundred years, a hundred thrills, it's it's thrilling in all the best senses, and um, all the fun senses. Like uh, I don't, it's kind of like doofully scary, but not like not certainly not Exorcist thrilling. Like a different kind of thrilling here, but like I, I think it's a good indication of for as heady as Hitchcock movies can be, like, as transgressive as they can be, like, dude could also just do a popcorn flick if he wanted, and, like, 
this is kind of a pure example of that. And um, to that point, though, I was, I was just kind of poking around some details of it, and like because this is surrounded at this point on the AFI list with some movies that made gobs of money. Uh, relatively muted success here. Um, 4.3 million budget, 9.8 million box office. Obviously, both of those go up quite a bit from, uh, what, 1959? Um, but, I don't know, I guess I was kind of surprised that this one wasn't, like, more of a smash hit in its time. Um, but regardless, I think just a, the crop duster is the scene that, like, defines an entire experience of Hitchcock in a way um, that will live on, but I guess props to the Mount Rushmore scene too, which I feel is like attempted to be recreated in a lot more things um, for good reason. Like it, it's, it's thrilling in a, in a very fun way. The thing about this movie is that for me, my absolute favorite scene in it is not a is not one of the action set pieces at all. It is the scene where Cary Grant knows that he, if he does not get arrested, he is going to be murdered. And so what he does is he just completely obliterates this auction of like rare items and decides that he is going to get himself in so much trouble at an auction for like artwork that he is going to get arrested, which if you're going to get arrested at any, like, kind of, like, hoity-toity event, this is absolutely the kind of thing you could get arrested at if you decide to be obstreperous enough. And he's just so funny. And, like, the way that he that he starts off so strong and, like, starts talking about how some of the items are fake and is just really, really obnoxious. And then the... The kiss for this one for me is just that he lures the lures the auctioneer into this false sense of security. Like the auctioneer is so desperate to get this thing on track, and Cary Grant finally and I I never call him Thornhill in this because it's it's Cary Grant, but like he he decides he's going to like actually bid on an item, and the auctioneer just has this huge look of relief on his face, and then he comes back and he like tries to bid on it again and the auctioneer is just like you've got to be kidding me <laughs> like, it's this incredible moment and it's so funny and watching watching James Mason and Martin Landau look at him and figure out what he's doing is also so perfect it's just this incredibly incredibly funny sequence but it's also smart as a whip um and, and you see the whole thing play out and just being able to, to get in on what's going on in the film and know what everybody is thinking so precisely down to the profanity they have in their heads is is just really priceless to me. It, it is a movie that, I don't know, I'm almost, I almost feel like, feel like I'm low on because I don't, like, I really enjoy this one and I could, I could watch it once a year and not get bored with it, um, but I don't have like the true love in my heart for it that I know some people do. There are other Hitchcock movies that I just really, really um, stick to harder than this one. But like, I don't know. It really, it really is just like the epitome of of perfect. Let's sit down and eat our popcorn as noisily and crunchily as possible, and slurp our sodas. And this would be such a wonderful movie to see with like 
a thousand people too, like just the biggest, most packed theater you could get. Um, it really, it really is like the perfect distillation of what you want a good, exciting, well-crafted movie to be. Um, and it's also at the same time, just the perfect example of what a Hitchcock movie is. Even though there are better Hitchcock movies, there are Hitchcock movies that are more influential. Um, but the reason that we have the theme we do this week, uh, To Thine Own O Tour Be True, is, is because this one, I think, is really getting at what he was most preoccupied with in his films over the course of his career. Um, and we do have the pleasant, the pleasant, uh, um... Hamlet reference in both. Is that what you're raising your hand about, or did you have something else in mind? Uh, no, I had just some quick, quick fire stuff, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Um, one, yeah, no, I was thinking about like where this belongs, so to speak, on the list. Like, apparently, AFI has decided a lot of like very popular uh, communal movies. Uh, like what you were saying about seeing this in a giant theater, like there's a run of a lot of those between like 40 and 60, apparently is where AFI decided those belong. <laughs> um, uh, one, um, to continue the analogy is North by Northwest, the, the Mike Trout of the Hitchcock filmography, uh, like based on your back burner researching, So to, if That's you haven't listened on the to part one, part one, a shame on you, but B, like, is this one that just ends up near the top all the time, but like, maybe ends up as the bridesmaid more than it should. <laughs> I put Tim on the spot and now he has to dig into his like hundreds of Excel sheets. Oh, the hundred of Excel sheets. How, how many there are indeed. Um, it's one that I think actually is maybe hitting above its weight a little bit because I think I think there are other Hitchcock movies like for me a movie like Rear Window is possibly the the trout of your of your Hitchcock filmography in that it's it's never quite high enough for me even though you'll find people who put it first but like North by Northwest is like I don't know um Maybe it's more like your J.D. Martinez of Hitchcock movies and that you know what you're going to get and it delivers so often. Um, and maybe that is a little bit old-fashioned, too, because I don't think J.D. Martinez has, like, stolen an award or anything from him in a while. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely popular no matter what measure you look at. Like, your, your websites, your individual critics, like, everybody just recognizes how wonderful North by Northwest is. And I just, I just love that it's, it does have that sort of communal aspect to it that everybody can kind of agree. Yes, this is a, this is a one that we can, we can all buy into. Even though it's, it's not a movie that I think, um, people appreciated as much as the, at the time, like you were sort of getting at, like, it did really well at the box office, but it's, like, it's not Psycho, you know? And it's it's not Rebecca in terms of Oscar success or anything like that. Like, I think it is. it was easy for people in 1959 to sort of look at it and say, 
oh, it's another really great Hitchcock movie, don't we all love those? Um, but it's sort of the, gosh, I hate bringing in another sports thing, <laughs> especially from a different sport, but, like, everybody on the internet who's sort of, like, you have to treasure LeBron James while he's here kind of thing. Like, it's people were not treasuring Alfred Hitchcock while he was there. Um, and in much the same way that, like, there's a great argument that one of those guys is the greatest basketball player of all time, and there's a great argument that Hitchcock is the greatest director of all time. Like, I, th I think people sort of slept on slept on what he was doing here. Um, and I think, I think the movie is, is maybe even slipping in appreciation right now. Like if you look at the, the AFI list from 98, it was 40th and then it's dropped down to 55 here in this particular, um, this particular entry. So like Jaws, a movie, which I think it's very similar to just in terms of entertainment value um, a great action thriller director doing a great action thriller movie. And and yet both of them drop on the AFI list from 2007. And I, I don't know offhand if people would raise them up a little bit more in a, in a newer list. If people have sort of learned to appreciate GOAT candidates a little bit more. If they would look at these and say, no, in our era of like... Um, huge budgeted movies that all feel the same and have no personality. Is it is it something that we appreciate more to have something which did have a budget, which does have stars, which does have pedigree, and which is just so purely entertaining? Like you kind of miss it now because it's that that level of craft and and um, workmanship is is just kind of missing from a lot of our modern blockbuster stuff. We should also appreciate Mike Trout while he's here. So maybe it does work in some sense. Can you tell we're recording this during the World Series? Um, shouts to James Mason. That was a very quick thing. And the other quick thing, God, give me the the screwball of Cary Grant doing like auction crashers. I'd watch that every day. <laughs> Like it, it could be, it could be an entire sitcom length bit. Like there's an entire sitcom episode in there that they could have expanded out further if they wanted to. Like there's, it, it's got Seinfeld vibes to it. It just, it really is just such a perfect thing. Even down to the, even down to the part where he actually gets arrested, which I think is funny on its own and which people are not talking about enough. Um, just the way that he acts with the cops, like, it took you guys long enough, where have you been? <laughs> like, that that has its own sort of magic to it. Um, more North by Northwest ideas, thoughts to bring in, or are we alright? Looks like we're alright. So, I, I said before, the, the theme of this particular episode is To Thine Own O Tour Be True, and of course, um, North by Northwest is a title that doesn't actually make sense. <laughs> And it, it sort of only makes sense if you think about, like, the the sort of zaniness that, that it's sort of referenced back to in Hamlet. And, of course, To That Own Self Be True um, is, is, uh, is another Hamlet line. So I feel like, I feel like that's the, the best theme I can come up with because it is an idea that I think is hard to, to get down to a, to a quick phrase. But basically what I'm looking for is 
movies from American cinema history by like giants of the industry, preferably with major figures within it, where you can sort of see what that director is after, um, where you can see, even if it's not the director's best movie, and, and none of the movies I'm, I'm talking about today, do I think, are that director's best one. But where you can just sort of see what they're interested in, how they go about talking about it, um, and, and in their, you know, long, long careers, is there a movie that kind of gets to what they, what they most care about um, in a way that I find is really compelling? So we have two Johns today, um, two giant Johns of the American... American cinematic experience, John Huston and John Ford. Um, and, and both of them, again, with careers that lasted many decades in Hollywood. Um, and of course, some of their, their best movies are among the best movies ever made anywhere, to be perfectly honest. We've got Moby Dick today, um, a movie that's easy for us to forget, I guess. We can, we can talk about that. Uh, and we have My Darling Clementine. Both of these have bad titles, and I, I don't, <laughs> like, in the same way that I think Northwest by Northwest is kind of a dumb title, uh, but we will get into what makes hey, both, on, of them, both of them great. What yes, the man. hell else are you going to call Moby Dick? Angry Boat Dude? I don't know. <laughs> Alright, maybe that is better. Do you wanna do you wanna talk real quick while I, while I like, get a sip of, of tea here, like, why the Moby Dick being forgettable thing is sort of sort of right for us, and how I'm glad that we are managing to talk about this particular story because it it's not a guarantee that we always get to it. Yeah, I was mostly just impressed to see it here and not like finish every friggin' episode of this thing, and then suddenly you realize, oh man, I could have talked about Moby Dick in like ten different episodes. Um, Tim and I have been known to do a, I don't know, a silly activity or two, um, or, or more than that, and often this involves brackets, and sometimes when we're feeling particularly audacious, this involves brackets of, of novels, and uh, inevitably, invariably, we will forget Moby Dick when doing such things, and then realize it around, like, the ten seeds, and go, oh, fuck. <laughs> And suddenly, there's a Herman Melville-sized, uh, not even a Cinderella, just wrecking ball that uh, is about to go through our bracket. So yeah, I feel like Moby Dick kind of has that, kind of has that weight in John Huston's entire filmography. Um, and this one, I think, is very perfectly him in a few different ways. I think you kind of have to start with the most obvious one, which is that. Houston is not, like, unique or anything for how many of his movies are, in fact, like, literary adaptations. Um, certainly not for people who were making movies in the 40s as he was doing. But, like, he kind of is unique in that way. Like, there are a few people who have pulled from, from, like, plays and from novels as much as that guy did. As far as I can tell, something like... Out of his 37 or so, it's always hard to, like, get people to actually agree on this, but, like, if you say that he has about 37 
narrative features, which I think we can say. 34 of them are from a novel or a play. And it's not just that he pulled from, like, novels and plays all the time. It's that so many of them come from huge works of literature or huge authors. So, of course, he has a James Joyce adaptation. He has a Malcolm Lowry adaptation. There's Rudyard Kipling. There's Tennessee Williams. There's Stephen Crane. There's Flannery O'Connor. The movie that made him is a Dashiell Hammett adaptation, The Maltese Falcon. Like, the guy was pulling from huge authors... And then he also worked with great literary minds. Like he has, um, he has a stretch in his career where you can see him working with James Agee, and you can see him working with Truman Capote. And Moby Dick is something that he co-wrote with Ray Bradbury. And apparently, the experience almost killed Ray Bradbury. I don't think he liked John Huston very much at the end of it, but the two of them did work together um, on this on this movie. John Huston directed a movie that is called The Bible, which is not the whole Bible, but, like, you get the picture. This is somebody who made his career out of adapting things. Even even movies like Prizzy's Honor or The Asphalt Jungle are, like, based on novels, which is not something that I would have known if I hadn't looked it up. Um, but this is a guy who went to the well over and over again for like, literary stuff. And for a guy who is sort of a man's man in a lot of way, like, Houston is definitely kind of a Hemingway figure among, among like, directors in the way that he he loved bravado and he loved big gestures and he loved manly things and he was something of a, of a ladies' man and all of that. Like, there is a, a lot of intellectualism within him in the same way that you can find a lot of very smart ideas in Hemingway, even if the the reputation of the guy is, is as I guess, his personal life goes, um, even if that is something that it's kind of easy to poke fun at. Houston is much the same way, um, and there is a lot of really brilliant stuff that he does, even if not all of the literary adaptations are perfect. Um, I think Moby Dick is one of his most successful. It is kind of an impossible kind of an impossible novel to turn into a movie, which I kind of love that he's just like, you know what? Why don't we take Moby Dick in the 1950s when it's hard to, you know, make whales happen on screen? Like you have to struggle a little bit to get the the power of a whale onto your um onto your movie screen. Why wouldn't we just try to adapt this thing, which should not be possible to adapt? Have, have you seen his Moby Dick before? Nope. Um, which feels like an oversight. I don't know. It's just... I don't know. It feels to me like I, I should have seen every Moby Dick, whatever, but I guess that's fitting with our history. Do you want to, Do you know how long this movie is? Do you want to guess how long this movie is? Oh, God. Um, it's either going to be comically short or, like, epically long, and I'm going to say 210 minutes. It's like 116. It's, like, under two hours, which is insane. I went the wrong way, damn it. Like, that is an insane amount of time (laughs) to turn Moby Dick into, Um, especially 
I don't remember how long is the dead. I'm looking this up right now. Um, this is the guy who took some pages. Yeah, this is the guy who took the dead, and the dead is 83 minutes, which is like a novella, and his version of Moby Dick is like half an hour longer than that, which is like one of the huge doorstops of literature ever. So there's there's something impressive about the way that this guy could like take take a story and then find what was important in it, mine it for what worked, and then create an adaptation. And Moby Dick, the John Huston movie, is not Moby Dick, the Herman Melville novel. Nothing possibly could be. But, like, it is it is kind of incredible that he has managed to, to create something that has a really clear plot, and which really does manage to turn something which I think is is still kind of unfilmable into a really great movie. Um, even though I don't think Moby Dick is frequently mentioned alongside like Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre for like the great John Huston movies, but maybe it should be. Maybe, at least in my personal opinion, which I understand is a little weird, um, I do think this is one of his one of his very best. Another thing that is very Houston is to find men trying to do impossible things. And I think even in something like the Maltese Falcon, which is a, which is like a great noir um, and one of the early noirs in American films, like there's something kind of impossible about recovering this object, which is quote unquote, the stuff that dreams are made of. That's an impossibility. You can't, you can't have something this wonderful, this valuable, this perfect. It just it just doesn't exist. And at the end of the movie, spoilers, I guess, like, it's not the real Maltese Falcon. They have to keep looking. Like, the people who are after it find out it's not the real bird. It's not the real, like, treasure item from, from the Crusades or whatever. Matt started laughing when I said the thing about men trying to do impossible quests. I mean, with apologies to the man who would be king, which is about two... British roughnecks who decide that they're going to become the kings of some place in, like, Pakistan or whatever. Captain Ahab trying to kill nature is maybe, like, the king of all impossible quests. I don't think that there is a... there is a more perfect distillation of that idea in maybe anyone's movie than there is in in Moby Dick, the 1956... um, John Huston adaptation. So in two different ways, John Huston, the literary adaptation guy, and John Huston, the the guy who is just a true a true um, patron saint of anybody who ever w- wanted to be Don Quixote, of anybody who ever wanted to to joust with windmills. Like this is this is really a, a terrific example of it. Um, and and I think you sort of have to start there with with Moby Dick as a movie. Now I'm sad we don't have a John Huston Don Quixote. Uh, <laughs> I want to see him try and kill the windmills. Um, it's actually like even funnier to me because I, I'm I don't know maybe uh, unsurprisingly partial to Tony Morrison's reading of Moby Dick. So I mean you can either think of <laughs> Ahab as trying to kill nature or trying to kill culture, um, and either way. Uh, <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Um, and 
what it what it means to try and put that on film is just kind of hysterical, but like also admirable. So I don't think we have to get into the plot of this one much. Like you don't actually have to have read Moby Dick or seen Moby Dick to know to know that he is not or I'm sorry, to like know that he's not gonna kill the whale. Like everybody knows it's about the guy who gets on a boat. He doesn't realize quite what he's getting into when he gets on the boat, even though somebody tries to tell him what he's getting into when he gets on the boat, and then the boat is doomed. Like, that's that's Moby Dick. Congratulations, you now know the story. Um, but, like, <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to get into that. What I love about this movie is that if you're, if you're trying to film this thing, you kind of have to decide how you want it to look so that it's not just mutiny on the bounty. You know, like, so it's not just another boat movie. Like, this is not a Bodie McBoatface movie. Um, and, and I guess if I really wanted to include that instead of whatever we did for Titanic, I guess we could have. But, like, this is, this is not a Bodie McBoatface movie because it doesn't look like any other movie I have ever seen. The cinematography in this is absolutely unlike everything else. It is papery. Um, when I've written about it before, it's like, it seems tree-like because it seems either like a woodcut or it's got like sort of a scrim over it. And I think that's kind of literal. So it has this very washed out look. And that's because as far as I can figure out, they like put black and white film over their color film as they were doing it. And so it's got this extremely weird look about it. Like, everything's a little bit ghostly. Everything's a little bit uncanny. And that's, like, the way that this that this movie looks. Um, and if you're going to adapt Moby Dick, which I think is impossible to get the sense of how, like, majestic and remarkable that is, and the world that Melville is creating is this strange, beautiful, unknowable not just in the sense that you, like, can't understand nature, but also Melville thought they were fishes. So, like, it's sort of unknowable in that way. That's what the cinematography is doing here, and, and it credits the, the technique to, to Houston and to Oswald Morris, who, who shot the film. Um, and it's, it's doing something which makes everything feel like it's in a dream or it's in some kind of night where the dark colors, the browns are, are too brown and the shadows are too dark. And like, it makes the scar that they put on Ahab, who is played by Gregory Peck, who is just really chewing scenery in a way that I love in this thing. Um, he's got the scar that goes across his face and like the scar starts to glow after a while. Like it's so white that it just looks strange compared to all of the, the sort of shadowy colors that they include otherwise. That's like, it's the most Houston thing to put this icon of American manliness, as he has done with Humphrey Bogart, who is kind of an icon of American manliness. He worked with Bogie a whole lot. Um, to do it with Peck, who is more handsome and bigger and stronger and taller and doesn't sound like he just smoked a cigar filled with helium, which is kind of the Humphrey Bogart voice guarantee. 
like Gregory Peck is doubling down on the Gregory Peck voice. That's it's it's this huge performance, and I don't think Peck is supposed to have liked it very much. Like I think he he thought he was giving this bizarre performance, and he didn't like it. But it's a great performance. It's an incredible performance because he is owning this movie and saying all of the lines from the novel in exactly the voice that you want to hear them in. Um, everything about where he is willing to chase this whale sounds perfect. Everything about um, how there are masks and the the whale is behind this mask and it's what behind what is behind the mask that that tasks him. That's a great line. I love that. I love the way he says it. Um, and I love the look on his face as the whale sort of drags him underwater. Like as you see, as you see this big whale model leap up out of the out of the water, and you see Gregory Peck stuck to it and still like stabbing away and and just being dragged to his doom. Man, I love that about it too. Like it's a it's it just gets at the the craziness and the obsession and the darkness and the the magic of the of the novel itself. Um for me, any adaptation of Moby Dick has to has to really sing in that sequence where Ahab has the St. Elmo's fire, this this unearthly green lightning, and he like gets it into the harpoon, and the movie does such an incredible job. At this point, the shadows and the blacks are so, so thick and dense, and then the green just absolutely punctures all of that. And watching the craziness in his face is he's like, yeah, I've got this thing in my harpoon. You better believe I'm like the king of nature. Um, that's in it too. And of course it fails. <laughs> like, of course it fails. It has to fail. Um, and that's, that's what Houston is all about. It's about documenting those failures, um, which, which have festooned literature for so many years. I really love this movie. I think Houston is like, He's a guy who, when I real when I like him, I really like him. And this is one of those movies where I'm just like, this guy's awesome. I love everything that he does. Every choice he makes is a winner. Um, and it just it gets at the heart of this very American filmmaker who is going back to American literature so often um, and getting at this very American ideal of we like our men to shoot for the moon or to shoot for the white whale, or what have you. And we don't often talk about how they fail, but, like, boy, how do you would better believe they fail more often than they succeed. <laughs> and that's that's very much what he's doing in this, and it is just the most Houston movie imaginable. Other other Moby Dick thoughts before we, before we trudge on? Well, in my reading about it while you're... Uh discussing it i see there's reference to the bikini atoll which mm -hmm. to me is really interesting um <clears throat> a nice update to what, what could lead to such megafauna you wanted to say something on that well i think that's like the it's the it's the one place where you definitely get to watch ray bradbury go to work because like obviously it's not in the novel and like the way that Houston just sort of lets the camera linger over it. Like, nobody nobody has to say it, but you sort of watch the fingers point to the place on the map, and you're like, oh. <laughs> like, look at these look at these crazy Americans tracking down this thing, which, you know, their their descendants will 
only wreak more havoc from this particular spot. Like, there is a circularity there that's really, really beautiful, too. I mean, it's a fun update of the, like, Moby Dick is fundamentally about, like, the original sin of America, whatever you take that to be, um, and, like, the destruction that will inevitably be continually wrought from there. Um, so I like that, but uh, I don't know that I have much else, um, but I do have a question, and it's, who does Moby Dick better, John Houston or Mastodon? Oh, that's... <laughs> That's a, that's a real split-me-right-down-the-middle kind of thing. Um, I think I think as far as their mediums go, I can't imagine anyone doing it better in music than Mastodon, and I cannot imagine a better cinematic version of it than, than Houston. I think I'm going to give the edge to John Houston, and the reason why is that Mastodon does not have a truly strange Orson Welles cameo. That if they had managed to get Orson Welles in a beard preaching from the prow of his of his um of his church, I think I think I would have to give them the the edge, but John Houston got Orson Welles and so I can. I think part of that is incidental to Orson's well, Orson Welles's death, but also I like to think that's the spirit of the Mastodon album. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't even get to talk about just how ludicrous <laughs> Orson Welles is in this, and it's not even a performance that I think is meant to be particularly ludicrous. It's just ridiculous watching him up there. Um, if it's a movie that, if it's a movie that's ever kind of like scared you off, and I speak broadly to the to the folks in the audience now but if this is a movie that you've ever been like i'm not a boat movie person and i'm not a moby dick person like just kind of go for it and like sit back and watch the watch the mania and watch the cinematography it's just really a master class in that stuff another movie with basically perfect cinematography another movie by an american master john uh that's My Darling Clementine by John Ford. This movie, um, it's it's a gunfight at the OK Corral movie. So another sort of central piece of the American myth is rather more land-based and less Titanic on the whole, but it's a, it's a major part of the sort of building of the West myth that we have. Um, and of course, there is no one who has ever devoted himself to two things quite as much as John Ford was devoted to it. Um, a guy who is devoted to creating to the myth of the West and showcasing, showcasing what, the, what that manifest destiny mindset meant. And there is no one who was more interested or better in pulling that thing apart from the walnut at the center of the yarn ball and just going outwards. There's no one else who's ever done a better job at, at pulling that, uh, pulling that string and watching the entire thing unravel. And there are, there are other movies which do the myth of the West more. Like there are movies like Stagecoach, which do it more or a movie, um, like, I don't know, maybe like Rio Grande that does it more. And there are movies that pull it apart more, like Ford Apache or A Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or The Searchers pull it apart more. 
But for that balance of the two, I don't think that there's one that gets at it quite as much as My Darling Clementine. And that's why it's here. Uh, because I think it's a movie which wants to build that myth up and wants to wants to give it a hug and a handshake and a cup of coffee. And at the other end of it, wants us to know that the myth is not meant to be forever. That the myth is meant to be something that you grow beyond, you know, sort of like Yoda tells Luke. Um, he wants he wants his viewers to feel like they are what Wyatt Earp uh, had to had to step aside so they could become. So this one is is a pretty standard gunfight at OK Corral kind of thing. Um, you've got. Wider being played by Henry Fonda, uh, who is just trying to get into business, who is trying to get out of law, and then finds himself getting roped back in after his brother um, is killed by the Clantons. He decides to become the the marshal in in Tombstone. He gets his other brothers to help him out, played by Tim Holt and Ward Bond. The Clantons are are still out there and being scary. They are led by Walter Brennan in. One of the one of the very rare Walter Brennan John Ford collaborations. Apparently, Brennan did not like Ford at all, um, but it is it is one of his very best performances because his performance as Old Man Clanton is like really unsettling. Like it's it's like not Walter Brennan being like cutesy and kind of fun and endearing and, and folksy or anything. It's like a like a serial killer kind of performance. It's really, really good. Um, <laughs> I think there is, there is some level of, um, there's some level of criticism I've read before that sort of suggests that the anger that he felt or that you feel Clanton projecting is, is like Brennan's anger with John Ford. <laughs> like there's some level of like, he hated him so much and that hatred like spills into the, spills into the performance, which, of course, is a very Ford thing to do anyway, so I almost believe it. Um, it is a it is a movie that sets the two of those two clans up together. Um, Doc Holliday, always the, the hot guy, always the most doomed, always the most tubercular, whatever, um, is being played by uh, Victor Matcher, who is not someone who I typically look for, but I think he's really good in like the pivot part for this movie um like you have the 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 solid fierce but understated heroism of your Wyatt Earp um played by Henry Fonda who is about as perfect like a American hero as you would want um, and had played the American hero for John Ford in Young Mr. Lincoln, and had done it again in The Grapes of Wrath, like it was a thing he was starting to make a career out of. And then on the other side of it, you have the lawless aspects of, of the frontier that one fears, and that's the Clantons. And then in the middle, you have this kind of ambivalent person who, as he goes, you would get the sense that Tombstone will go. If he sort of steps aside and lets the Clantons have their way, then there won't be much that Wyatt Earp can do about it, and if he sides with Wyatt Earp, then the Clantons are doomed. And you get the sense from his performance that he knows that there's a there's a special power in him. Um, this isn't, I don't think this is one that you've seen either, necessarily, unless you're going to fool me. 
wish I could, but I can't here. Um, I don't know. I'm sort of interested, though, because I feel like everyone has seen the the OK Corral stuff. So um, hearing how John Ford does this, who it, 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 admittedly I expect to have done it very well, um, will be interesting nonetheless. All right. So the thing that that makes this the great, like, if you wanted to know what John Ford had in his brain, watch My Darling Clementine. Like, the reason why I choose this instead of any of the other 30-some John Ford movies that I've seen at this point is because is because of a sequence where Wyatt Earp is taking Doc Holliday's... I'm going to call her Doc Holliday's girl. This is Clementine. She's from the, from the East, uh, played by Kathy Downs. She has come to essentially, like, search for for Doc Holliday, who she calls John, incidentally, which is, like, the sign that he's supposed to be a human being after all. Um, and he's been running away from her and shacking up with a Mexican who is not actually Mexican, played by Linda Darnell. Um, such is the time. But the the film is is showing that he's, like, running away from her because he considers he considers himself too tawdry and too broken down for her and does not want Clementine to like waste her life on him. So she's going to church, uh, the new, the new church with, with Wyatt Earp instead. And he's sort of taken with her. Um, she's beautiful and sophisticated and refined in a way that the women of the West don't get to be. Um, that's, that's not what they're, not what they're like, not what they're for. So he is got his hair slicked down and he's, um, wearing this cologne that is confusing the bejesus out of everybody. Like, there's this very good set of jokes where everyone walks up to him and they're like, what is that smell? <laughs> like, do you smell something? And he's, like, trying to, like, he's, like, rolling his eyes and like, it's me, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's very funny to watch, to watch Henry Fonda have to apologize for his cologne, like, five times in the same number of minutes. Uh, but he is... He is escorting Clementine to, like, the first meeting at this church, which is not done yet. Um, and there is this shot, which I think is a very Ford shot and on top of a very Ford scene. But basically what happens is you cut away from the people and you see that there are a bunch of people standing on the, on the wooden floorboards of the foundation of the church and on one half you can see the cross, and on the other half you can see American flags. And, like, that's, that's the foundation for Ford. It is this, this idea of God and country. And that's what we are meant to see, and that's what Wyatt Earp and, and Clementine are sort of shyly walking up to. And they go up there, and it's supposed to be like a dance. It's, like, it's less church than it is, um, like, a celebration that the church is, is finally being opened. And the two of them get the get the floor to themselves for a while, and they sort of dance around it, and she's a very good dancer, and Henry Fonda does a dance that I've never seen another human being attempt in, like, the history of the world. It's like, he's dancing, but he also has to kick his leg out in a weird way. It's very funny and very endearing. And the two of them are alone on the dance floor as that happens. And then they get off, and everybody else joins in. And there's this incredible moment of, if this is what the country is built on, and this is like, 
the myth that we believe in, then the mythic figures walk on it first. But it's important that they're not there when the actual community takes over. Like, if there is such a community, if there is a civilizing influence that is coming to Arizona, which we know from the present is not true, but if there is a civilizing influence that comes to comes to Arizona, it's it's the influence of the little people, of the people who follow behind in the wake of the myth, and who take that and address it in their own ways, not from the people who who clear out the land. And at the end of the movie, of course, um, I mean, we know how the gunfight at the OK Corral ends, sort of like we know how Moby Dick ends. And we know that at the end, Wyatt Earp is supposed to, like, move on. And Clementine, um, I mean, widowed is the wrong word, but that's essentially what's happened to her, because, of course, Doc Holliday dies there. Um, and Wyatt Earp has restored Tombstone to order, and he basically leaves it to the, to the little people. And, like, that's the, the idea. He and his surviving brother um, move on and go on to what they think is their next opportunity and try and get back into business now that they're down two of their own. And he leaves Clementine behind, and she is supposed to be going back east. And the mythic figures go away, and they have, like, cleared it out. It's, it's about... Um, they have done what they were supposed to do, but they're not meant to stay there. That the West is meant to be a place that can hold families and churches and is not supposed to be a place that is supposed to have gunfights and lawlessness forever. Um, that the frontier towns have to become homes and that Henry Fonda yields to Russell Simpson and Kathy Downs yields to Jane Darwell. Um, and he doesn't get to stay to see how it goes that the myth doesn't get to stay for reality. Um, and that's, that's like Ford at the very heart of it. Another guy who, who was like smarter than he let on, like somebody who again was, was extremely well read, who knew a lot of history um, and who always sort of presented himself as this like, Oh, I'm just a guy who makes Westerns yuck, yuck, yuck. And like, would pretend that there wasn't much there. But the the idea of the parable that is a very Fordian idea, um, using his his genre picture in a way to get this more interesting, more deeply felt idea into the world is a very him thing. And at this point in his life, I think there's some like there's some level of nostalgia for like what America is supposed to be. At this point he's he's back from the from the war, which was his, like, biggest glory in his whole life, but was also, like, the PTSD engine for him, like, something which really screwed him up and, and really furthered his alcoholism in, in ugly ways. Um, and he comes back to America and wants to, like, make that love letter, but at the same time, he has been at Midway, and he's been at D-Day, and, like, he understands what what is supposed to be built from these sacrifices? What is supposed to come after? And that's a very, very John Ford um, assessment of the world. Thoughts on my darling Clementine? Things to go on there. I'm interested in the, I suppose, just the attitude towards the myth or the mythic figure, particularly because we tend to overestimate like Wyatt Earp's status. Um, just historically, like, if I remember correctly, Virgil was, 
like for the OK Corral anyway, like he was the one um, who had more influence there and more more station. Um, so I, I'm I'm interested in that layering of like we've. I, you know, I don't know why, but, like, why it just kind of has outsized personality in the whole thing anyway, like, as this sort of mythic representation and, like, how that's playing in the film itself. So, like, it's kind of, right, the, the nuanced, uh, a nuanced emotional stance towards myth, uh, but a myth that is itself kind of false. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, like, how much Ford seems to recognize that part of it. I think that there's like, he doesn't, I, th- I think he knows first and foremost that he is absolutely not telling a true story. Like he, he absolutely knows he's like making crap up left and right. Um, there is a level of, of the Fonda characterization, like Wyatt Earp is, is just a decent guy, but I think it's also fitting that he is kind of a huge dork. Like, the the dancing makes him seem like kind of a dweeb, and the, the shyness with Clementine, like, no one else in this movie is shy around women. Um, but he, like, he acts like Clementine is, like, sent from God. Like, just, like, he couldn't, like, he, like, even the way he looks at her, these, like, very quick little glances, like, oh, I'm not supposed to, you know, lay my eyes on her too long, and she'll sort of, like, smirk when he does it. Like, this... This sort of like, oh yeah, you know, like this is a guy who was really into me, but, but, um, you know, I'm too polite to make fun of him about it, which in the present day, I think she would have to do perhaps. Um, the thing that I think the image of Fonda that's most famous from this movie is like, he'll sit on the porch of the hotel and it's got these, um, these beams that like hold the roof up. And he'll go out there with a chair and lean back on the chair and sort of, like, bounce himself back and forth, like, one foot at a time and see if he can do it without falling down, basically. Which is, on one hand, again, like, just invent the internet at that point because this is a dumb game. But on the other hand, there's this very funny kind of balance that I think Ford is sort of symbolizing, and again... I'm not going to credit him with this idea, but like the, the idea in, in the film of like trying to balance one thing with another, like recognizing two things and like trying to maintain that with that tricky balance of will the chair fall over and will the myth go with it? Or can you hold it all together at one time? Um, sort of going between fact and myth, past and present, whatever. That's something which I think is, is sort of being recognized tacitly in that moment. So whether or not I think, I think Ford himself again has to know that the reason Wyatt Earp got the treatment he did is because Wyatt Earp had the best press and because he wrote the book and because he like went to Hollywood for a while and like promoted himself, like was just a, was just a very strong self promoter. Um, and at the same time sort of recognizes the usefulness of the myth and the usefulness of putting a face on it, whether that, that face is Wyatt Earp's or Henry Fonda's. It makes me feel better about it in a way, which maybe shouldn't be the crux of analysis, but like, I don't know, I just, I get, uh, I get squirrely 
even if it's a recognition of like we need to move on from the myth like that figure served a purpose and now it has to be something else like i just get squirrely when it's like when it feels like there's a certain nostalgia for that that presence uh as it was you know again even with the recognition that we need to move on but like uh hearing that there's probably a sort of playfulness with it like I don't know, that just sits a little better in my head, I suppose. No, there's there's very little in Ford that's, like, monolith anyway. He's he's a person with a lot of contradictions and a lot of, like, hedging in his own personal life. And then you can see that sort of hedging um, sort of playing itself out in the films as, as a kind of even-handedness. Whether or not that's always good is something that that annoys me about him in some of his other movies. But in this one, I think that there's a really, really nice balance between the two, which is, which is why I went for it as opposed to something else. Ready for the, for the big talk. Is that, is that where we are? I think so. Let's spiel it up. All right. So original AFI movie this week is North by Northwest, which is kind of the perfect Hitchcock movie. It is the one that I think it's a good place to start with for people who want to start with Hitchcock because it is the one that gets at so many of, of the things that he did well as a director and so many of the things that interested him as a director, whether it's starting with this big star presence at the, at the middle of the film, or if it's the, the big action set pieces that become iconic. Um, or for me, I think the most interesting thing is that wrong man idea that he is, um, that he is perpetuating. This is North by Northwest. It, it is the it is the Hitchcock film for so many reasons. So our theme today, to thine own auteur be true, uh, is about auteurs and, and major directors from American film who have a have some hobby horses that they have to ride. Um, and for John Huston, you can see it in Moby Dick because John Huston is America's great literary adapter and America's great chronicler of men who try to bite off more than they can chew. And of course, this is Moby Dick in a nutshell, <laughs> as far as both of those things go. Um, and the way the 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 way that he does it, it's it's not just about he makes Moby Dick. It's a literary adaptation. It's about Ahab. But the way that he understands that a literary text has to be transformed into a cinematic one is is what is genuinely fascinating about that movie. And then in My Darling Clementine, John Ford's uh, 1946 movie, a film which, for the guy who is the American Western at its best, um, one of our one of our very few true artistic inventions that we have in this country, something like jazz, um, which is which is a very American invention. Uh, Ford is recognizing the the tensions at the center of our myths, recognizing that there is a falseness to them, recognizing that they are fundamentally made up, and recognizing that there is a sort of beauty in them, especially if you think about them as something that you have to transcend, as something that you have to move on from. That it's all well and good to tell the story of the gunfight at the OK Corral and to sort of luxuriate in the in the presence of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the Clantons and all of that, but that the the people who persist in the same way that in The Grapes of Wrath, um, 
Majo tells tells Pa we're the people. Um, that same kind of idea of the people is more important, and that what the people will build on from Tombstone is is what's most important for creating uh, a thriving country that will survive the myths itself. So, Moby Dick, my darling Clementine, um, where where are you at for these? Um, is this one where like you? are going to be happy, sad with either decision. I'm just curious. They seem like, uh, I think you like both Johns, but. I mean, I'm, I'm personally fonder of, of both Ford and my darling Clementine. Um, but this is, this is a happy, sad thing. Like either, either one of the, one of the 50 best American movies gets onto the subtitles list, or we have what I think is a truly underrated effort from, from one of America's, like, great masters of, of the craft. Well, I'm not doing this to be a contrarian, but I am going with Moby Dick. Um, I think partially because uh, I, I'm sure we know by this point. I'm sure you know if you listen to part one. I, I love an artist consumed with, uh, or consumed by, rather, or obsessed with failure. Um, and... Like this is sort of the apex, the the ur text for Houston to take on for that is is deeply appealing to me. But you actually won me over with something you said in the spiel there of uh, recognizing how this has to be a cinematic experience. Like it has to be something different, and just the fact that auteur can apply to other things, but we definitely most typically use it with film directing. Um, so that little bit actually was an extra appeal to me. Um, I, I like, you know, I like what Ford is doing in, in My Darling Clementine or what I'm hearing anyway and how, like, this it does seem to be a distillation of what I understand Ford to be anyway. Um, like, a, a cleaner one in some ways because he's working in the same genre, really. Um, Houston is kind of bouncing around, uh, like, content. But, I don't know, just like that, transforming the literary into the cinematic won me over and just, I don't know, like, again, fighting nature, like, try trying to kill nature, like, <clears throat> that's just perfect for Houston. So, <clears throat> as I lose my voice, that one, I'm, I'm sending that one through, but I, I will pour one out for my darling Clementine for you. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, if if there is one thing to to bring home to people is that if if you're looking at um at North by Northwest and saying like this is a this is an undisputed classic and My Darling Clementine, which is like one of the great westerns, one of the great American movies of all time, um, I think Moby Dick is a movie that like just does not get that same level of appreciation and. Whether or not it's like a top 100, 150 American movie for me is sort of up in the air, but like, it definitely deserves more credit <laughs> than it gets. Um, but just as a just as a really special technical milestone, whether you you are looking at the the cinematography or if you are thinking about um, just the the weight of that adaptation and how cleanly and how precisely that thing still comes out anyway. Wait. I, this is not the reason I chose it, but I'm now extra excited for when you rank the subtitles movies list and Moby Dick. You just forget about it until like 93rd or something. It could happen. 
<laughs> like I think I think I think you could bet money on that one. It seemed like I definitely can see myself doing this for like half an hour and then just being like, oh man, <laughs> like, there it is again. Um, so our running gag um, story, I guess I'll call it, uh, has has made it through, uh, replacing North by Northwest. If you like what you heard, if you are interested in um, chasing this podcast around the Norway Maelstrom or even chasing it to the moon and Antarctica, you can definitely hear um, definitely hear Matt talk about the Modest Mouse album and the replacements and the idea of Cosmic Indie in part one of this. If you want to find out about that, you can head to our website, which is subtitlespodcast.com, which is where you can find the back episodes, the part one of this episode, uh, where you can find both blogs, uh, a link to, you can find links as well to his Spotify, my letterboxed, um, and we will see you next time.